worship you They come to hear the truth Why scroll to wage your time Well, happy Sunday to you. Thank you for taking the time to watch and listen. For those in the room, we're starting a brand new series today called Once Upon a Land. And did you have a favorite fairy tale when you were growing up? For some of us, we have young kids right now. We're in the middle of all the tales. And for some of us, we have to think back quite a, quite a while because our kids are grown. But we all remember how they begin, right? Once upon a time. They're all the same in that regard. They're essentially all the same. And the story might be a little different. The details might be a little off. But there's always three elements to a fairy tale. The first are the characters. Whether an evil queen or a charming prince or a beautiful princess or a talking snowman, there's always characters in a fairy tale. And then there would be supernatural events, whether a magical mirror or a glass slipper or hair that grows continuously for stories down a tower or somehow was strong enough to, for people to climb up or a beanstalk that grows up into the sky. There are all sorts of supernatural events that went along with the fairy tales. And then the third would be the principle to live by, right? It's don't be vain. Value others above yourselves. Don't value your position in life over people in your life. Let it go. Right? There's always an important life lesson to these. It's interesting. Um, as a follower of Jesus, the Bible has interesting characters too. A passionate fisherman, corrupt financial advisor, a man with supernatural strength, a slave turned prime minister, evil kings and queens, even a talking donkey. And the Bible also has supernatural events like a floating axe head, a giant slain with a slingshot, water parted, walking on water, healing the blind, dead people are raised back to life in all sorts of supernatural events. And the Bible has plenty of principles and commands to live by. And it's easy for someone that, um, who might think the Bible is just a fairy tale. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe someone invited you to watch online or to be here in the room. Maybe this is your first time in church. And you may think that. And, and I, can I be honest? I don't, I don't blame you for thinking that. I don't blame you for thinking the Bible is a fairy tale. I really don't. The main difference between the Bible and the fairy tales we learned growing up is the accounts in the Bible happen in real places. These are true events that happen in a true land. It took place in locations that you and I can actually go and visit. With fairy tales, we can't do that. And Disney doesn't count. Well, we can't go to Cinderella's castle. We can't go to the seven dwarves' home. We, we cannot see Rapunzel's tower. 
And what the Bible does is it records accounts that took place in actual places, in locations that you and I can go visit this day. It's once upon a land that has a rich history. And it's like the rich history of the land that we live here in Virginia, where it doesn't take long to go to a battlefield of the Civil War. Or if we drive a couple hours, we can see where the first settlement in Jamestown occurred. But the big difference between Virginia and the Middle East is that there's an ongoing fight for that land where all of these incredible true stories of the Bible took place. Over the next two weeks, I want us to understand the history of the land, what the future holds for us in the land, and know the owner of the land better. The hope is that it provides understanding and perspective as we hear news and media reports concerning the land and the people living in the land. The media, the pundits, the celebrities have picked sides and made their perspective the truth. My other hope is that this, this series would, would come alive for you. That it would become real, more real for you. Maybe to help understand what's going on and why it's going on over there. And, and maybe you're a skeptic and, and maybe you're not in the whole church thing and the whole Bible thing. And maybe you think this whole thing is kind of a, a crutch for the weak. And like, I, like, I get it. And I, I hope that you would reconsider. And here's why. What if you ask yourself this question? What if the Bible really does document things that provides answers to this ongoing conflict in Israel? There's two questions that I've been asked since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. The first is why is there so much conflict in Israel? And the second question is Americans, who do we support? Palestinians or Jews? And so this week, we're going to look at the first question. Next week, we'll look at the second question. Today is going to be probably more academic than we're probably used to. And then next week is going to be uh, very practical. Alrighty, so let's pick it up here in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, God changed his name a little bit later. Now, Abraham at this time is worshiping gods created by his hands. Most likely at that time, they were worshiping the moon god. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham got up. He traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh, Shechem. At the time, the Canaanites were living in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. So God made three promises to Abraham. The first is that he would make a nation out of him and his descendants. The second is that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and would curse those who cursed him. And he would also provide, number three, land. See, God had the ability to give land because it was his to begin with. God created the land. So in simplest terms, the Lord owned the land. God had the ability to give the land because he created it. Now, imagine God, who you did not know existed, called you out of nowhere to pick up everything you owned, along with your spouse, 
promising that you would have kids when you couldn't have kids. And you don't stop moving until he tells you to stop. Like how many of us would have doubts? How many of us would need some reminders along the way? The struggles in life, and I, I think we know this to be true, can blind us from seeing God working to deliver on his word. And so, that's what happened. Abraham needed a reminder after reminder, much like you and me. And when God's promises were taking a long time to develop, Abraham thought that his servant, who was with him along the way, would inherit these promises. And God reminded him again, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Abraham, I want you to look. Look up at the sky. Count the stars if you can. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And then God does something really important. He makes a covenant with Abraham. Back then, in, in ancient times, covenants involved mutual obligations between parties. So two, you know, two people were committed to doing something and so this is what it would look like. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And last month we went through a study called God, Where Are You? We talked about how the Babylonians um, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, this is where they came from. He says, to give you this land, to take possession of it. So Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? Like, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite of each other, and the birds he did not cut in half. And so what they would do is they would make almost like a pathway. You had one half of the animal on one side, and the other half of the animal on the other side, and parties would walk in between. So when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. And then he begins explaining the borders from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and the land of all these people groups in between. So typically what would happen is when parties are agreeing to do this, they're saying, may I end up like these animals if I don't deliver? And instead of it being Abraham and God walking through it, God walked through it. That smoking fire pot with a blazing torch. John Cantor breaks this down even further. He says, God alone commits himself to a course of action through Abraham and his descendants that cannot be reversed. Else God would prove untrue and cannot be annulled by the failure of either Abraham or his descendants. However, and this is so important, it should be noted that while the gift or title deed to the land is unconditional, which means it's going to be theirs and it's dependent on God to deliver on it, not Abraham, actual enjoyment of the land is conditioned upon obedience which means they would not always be able to enjoy it because of their disobedience. And that's what we talked about last week as we wrapped up 
Um, the study of Habakkuk in the series, God, Where Are You?, where they were taken out of the land that was their land to be disciplined. And so about 10 years go by where God has called them to leave their families, go to this land, and Abraham and Sarah still don't have a child. And maybe we can relate, right? Maybe not this specifically, but we can relate to rushing God to do things on our behalf, on our time. And in all of our wisdom, we decide that God needs a little bit of help. And so we decide to help God deliver on his promises. And so she tells Abraham, hey, listen, this isn't really working out. I'm getting older, so what, if, if, if this is going to happen out of your own flesh, then here, here's the deal. I'm giving you my, my servant, the Egyptian, Hagar, as your wife. And in that moment, he should have said what? No way. And he does it. He does it, and it doesn't take long before Hagar is pregnant. And man, could you imagine what this does to Sarah, man? There's a lot of tension, and Sarah begins to blame Abraham. You're making me suffer. You did this to our family. And Hagar runs away with all the tension. I mean, we can't make this stuff up. Receives word from the angel of the Lord, and early church leaders believe this to be Jesus before his birth, that he was the angel of the Lord. And whether that's true or not, um, it was a distinct message from the angel of the Lord. You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So that we're super clear, Ishmael wasn't a mistake. This was an unintended consequence of doing things outside of God's will, outside of God's design, and outside of God's purpose. This is us trying to rush things and making things happen. So eventually, Abraham would, would have a son with Sarah, and they would name him Isaac. Then Sarah would die, and then he married another one, another woman, and had six sons with her. And so Ishmael would have seven younger half-brothers, and there would be conflict in those relationships because of his personality and because of his decision-making. So then about another decade goes by, and God tells Abraham to get ready as Sarah is ready to have a son at 90 years old. And so he's like, oh, okay, okay. And he offers Ishmael to be the one to inherit the covenant. And God assures him, no. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I heard you. I heard you. And I will surely bless him. And I will make him fruitful, and he will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. The land was given to Isaac, not Ishmael. 
that back then, that was something you talked about. Like at, at dinner, you talked about this. This wasn't a secret. Hagar would have known. Sarah would have known. Everyone, all the servants would have known. Abraham would have talked about this. Because this type of stuff was talked about all the time in that time and culture. Receiving the inheritance, receiving the blessing from your father was a big, big deal. And the covenant would continue to be an unconditional covenant between God and Isaac's descendants. The Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews. Then some time goes by. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham, was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get that slave woman and her son away from here. For that woman's son will never share any inheritance with my son Isaac. And it's hard to believe. Isaac, barely a toddler, would do anything to provoke mocking from Ishmael, who's almost a teenager. But what was the prediction? The prediction was because of who Ishmael was, his personality, his decision-making, it would bring hostility between him and his brothers. And this is where the generational tension begins. So fast forward some time, there's a famine in Canaan. So Isaac's son Jacob moves the family down to Egypt where they stayed for 400 years before escaping through Moses' leadership. And then they get back into the land under Joshua's leadership. And then we see the land occupied by several people groups. So in the ancient periods, it was inhabited by ancient peoples, the Canaanites, the Philistines, and the Israelites. It was also part of the empires of Egypt, Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia at different times as they were being conquered. As they were getting out of the Red Sea, Escaping Egypt under Moses' leadership, the Amalekites attacked Israel from behind, taking out the children and the elderly as they came out of Egypt. I mean, very barbaric. Then during the reign of King David, the Ishmaelites went up against God and against his people Israel. So this is what David wrote. The Ishmaelites' goal was to destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. So the hostility goes back very far. You remember the Amalekites? Well, they were to be destroyed. Unfortunately, someone was left alive. Then Haman, who was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, plotted to kill the Jews during the king Xerxes' reign. He was married to Queen Esther. This all gets played out in Esther. where the plot's discovered and Haman is executed. The Jews are saved. And then Nehemiah was sent back by Xerxes' son, King Artaxerxes, to rebuild the wall. And then you have the Hellenistic and the Roman periods. You have Alexander the Great conquering the world and conquering the Persians. And he sets up this infrastructure of a road system and also a language and um, really priming for Jesus to come. And so Jesus shows up. He lives, he dies, he's resurrected, the church is started, and there's a division between Jews and Christians. And eventually the Christians begin spreading out all over, over the known world at the time. 
And in AD 70, there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of friction between the Romans and the Jews. And so they destroyed the second Jewish temple in Jerusalem. During that time, the Romans called the land Judah and Galilee. But then there was an emperor, and that emperor did not like the Jews. And so they began calling the land in AD 135, Syria-Palestinia, or Palestine, after Israel's two historic enemies, Syria and Philistine. And this is the origin of the name Palestine to describe the land. Palestine is the name for the land. And then you have the Byzantine and early Islamic periods. And in AD 638, Jerusalem was forced to surrender to a Muslim army. They immediately began constructing a mosque on the Temple Mount, which was very offensive to Jews and Christians. About 200 years later, they began attacking the outer areas of Rome, which was followed by horrific persecution of Christians. And that led to the Crusades. European Christians established the kingdom of Jerusalem in that area. And that has come across as a black eye on church history. The Crusades started out as a response by military Islamic attacks and expansion. The Christians would recapture Jerusalem until 1291. And then Mamluks would take control. And then the Ottoman Empire would then conquer the region in the 16th century through World War I. In the beginning, late 19th century, in the early 20th century, here's what happened. Jews began purchasing land in Palestine. And much of this land was bought from absentee Arab landowners. The purchases were often facilitated by middlemen and sometimes involved disputes over land rights. This is really important because then they started taking care of the land, making it very beautiful. Then you have the British mandate. After the First World War, the League of Nations granted Britain the mandate to administer Palestine. The whole goal was to have a Jewish state and an Arab state. Israel declared independence in 1948, leading to the Arab-Israeli War. The war resulted in territorial changes, with Israel gaining control over a significant portion of the land, Palestine. Post-1948 to today, Israel owns a portion of what God has promised Abraham. So here's a map, and the land God has stated belongs to Israel, includes every, everything that modern-day Israel possesses, add all the territory occupied by the Palestinians, the West Bank and Gaza, some of Egypt and Syria, all of Jordan, and some of Saudi Arabia and Iraq. In 2000, President Clinton facilitated peace talks between Arafat and Barack. Barack proposed a comprehensive plan that included a two-state solution. It was rejected by Arafat. In 2007, Hamas, which means violence in Hebrew, won an election and are committed to eliminating Israel as a nation and Jews as a people. Now, here's the thing to know. Not all Israelis are Jews. Hamas wants the land as they do not believe Israel should have the land of their own and live in peace. Gaza is a very poor place to live with over 50% in poverty because Hamas has no desire to pursue and run a free society. So here are our takeaways this morning. Let's kind of make it a little practical. Think of this as the foundation before next week's more practical message. 
first thing. This all goes back to a father and two sons. God made a covenant with Abraham that included the land, lineage to the Messiah, and himself as the one true God, Jehovah. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Of course, he had more, but those are the two two oldest, Ishmael and Isaac. And God chooses Isaac as the son that the Messiah, Jesus, would come through to redeem people. By choosing Isaac, God rejected Ishmael as that son. Muhammad twisted the story to show that Ishmael was the chosen one, which means in their mind, in their philosophy, in their perspective, that they own the land. That's their land, their covenant, their God, Allah. The war started back then for those three things, and it will continue for those three things until Jesus comes back. The other thing, the other takeaway is that when we get ahead of God, we set ourselves further back. Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their hands. Perhaps with good intentions, they made God's supernatural promise make sense naturally. In getting ahead of God, they created more suffering for themselves and affected other people's lives forever. How often do we do that? That we try to get ahead of God and we make things harder on ourselves and then there's God's commitment to keep his word God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham regarding the land now it was partially fulfilled in 1948 but one day that land will be occupied and led by Jesus who will rule and reign from Jerusalem as the world experiences peace and if God has made a promise he will deliver on that promise And that's where we're going to pick it up there next Sunday. Two things to think about. First is, what is something that you are doubting even though God has promised it? And number two, how does this change your perspective about God, his people, and his land? Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful for your word. We thank you that you give us truth. And we're able to understand what that truth is. You you give us some answers when it comes to this conflict. And we're asked that you are protecting people who are in the middle of all this. Men and women that just try to get home with their lives. I ask that you will protect them. Father, for those of us in the room who maybe are struggling with believing the Bible is real. And the stories are real. And the stories are true. I ask that you would soften our heart that we would see that Jesus is real. He's the one true king who can change our lives. That when we surrender to him, when we give him everything, we don't regret it. We are able to live a life of abundance, of joy, of fulfillment, of satisfaction. So Father, in the meantime, help us to be prayerful for what is going on over there. Help us to be mindful that we are getting our facts straight as we have conversations with people. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.